All right. Welcome back to the podcast and welcome to Chris Swank. How are you doing? I'm well. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, it looks so sunny and, and delightful there in Tucson. Um, and I'm so glad that we could find a time to talk. Uh, we, I guess, talked about the Secret Commonwealth back when it came out in October, right, with Gabriel and Faith um, for the Signum Symposium. Um, since then, you've had a, a paper published in MythLore about Pullman and Lewis and Tolkien, um, which is awesome, super cool. Um, and you said you've been working on some other stuff on your sabbatical and, and now back at work, you know, with working from home, of course. So, so what's, what's new with you? What have you been working on? Uh, well, my sabbatical project was to make progress on my doctoral dissertation, which is not done yet, but I'm still working on it. And it's about uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and his Irish influences. So we're going to talk about how some of those Irish influences led me to my theories about Pullman's um, La Belle Sauvage in a minute. Right on. And um, I've been teaching for Signum University. And... Um, Gosh, I think that takes up most of my time. I'm back at work now. So I do have eight hours a day that I have to give to the people who pay me. But um, the fun stuff, I like work. But the fun stuff is, you know, writing these papers and doing research. So. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, so this paper on the Imrav tradition, that was a new concept for me. Um, I know you've been studying that at Signum, and it sounds like in your PhD as well. Um, how did you kind of get interested in that area? And then how did that lead you into to Pullman as well? So the Imrav is a medieval Irish voyage tale. People might have heard of St. Brendan, who got in a boat and went out in the ocean and he went to a number of islands where he met, they're marvelous islands. So they're like little other worlds that he visits. And then he finally makes it to the land of paradise on earth, where he meets um, what some people interpret as an angel, and then he goes back to Ireland and, and tells his story about the wonders of God along this voyage. And there were other of these Imrav tales. It just means voyaging about. So there are these voyage tales. The most famous one for us today or us at Signum uh, or in the fantasy community might be C.S. Lewis's Voyage of the Dawn Treader. They all get in a boat. They go out to a number of marvelous islands. Each island is, has its own character and its own marbles, and at the end, they get to the paradise where they meet Aslan disguised as a lamb. Mm. So uh, when I was studying at Signum, I was introduced to this by Dr. Merlin Flieger, mm. and I realized that Tolkien's Roborandum was a similar sort of story. He leaves home, he goes on a voyage to the moon, which Tolkien thought of as an island, and the deep blue sea and at the end he sees elven home in the distance and then he goes home and tells his doggy friends and his his human masters about it so and the cat doesn't believe him right the cat is jealous yeah. <laughs> that is jealous yeah. <laughs> yeah um and so when i read la belle sauvage a few years ago when it came out uh, i recognized that pullman was doing a similar thing so I wrote a story or a, uh, an article for Myth Lore about Don Treader, Rogue Random, and La Belle Sauvage and how they all tap into this ancient Irish storytelling tradition as a way of um, having characters go out and encounter the marvelous. And these are all children characters in Voyage of the Don Treader. They're um, Eustace and the Pevensey children. And Rogue Random is a puppy. And in La Belle Sauvage, it's Malcolm as a child and Lyra as a baby. So they all use that voyage as a growing experience. Yeah, and Alice too, right? The, the very interestingly named Alice, who, who also kind of changes quite a bit on there. On the takes them into that. Wonderland, right? Yeah, yeah right. definitely. <laughs> totally. And, um, and so, I, yeah, I'm, I, then how, how about uh, Pullman's work in general? Was that your first brush with it or um, where did you come across him? I had read the first trilogy <clears throat> probably in the early 2000s and I just read it. I'd never thought about writing any papers about it or, or um, it seemed to me that people had already written about um, its grounding in, in other literature <clears throat> and, and like everything was already written about Pullman. So I, I wasn't going to write about it. I just enjoyed 
the books. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until I hit La Belle Sauvage that I felt like I had something to say. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. The, so the Belle Sauvage, I mean, it was a long wait uh, for it. It's a, it's a quite a different um, uh, time period, for one thing. It's uh, set before the original series. Uh, yeah. And, and it's part of the Book of Dust. And I, I was curious, like, when are we going to get to the Book of Dust? Oh, right, right. So here's the main title. And we were calling it the Book of Dust for a year, right? Yeah. Until we learned that, oh, no, that's the overall title of the second trilogy. Yeah. And really, the first one is La Belle Sauvage. Yeah. So, and the second one is The Secret Commonwealth. And the third one is, we don't know what. Not sure yet. Well, so the, the, the power of dust within Pullman's, you know, world, um, it's clearly present, I guess, in these, uh, in, in the Belle Sauvage, and, and more so, I think, in The Secret Commonwealth. Um, but do, do you have any better grasp of, you know, how dust works, having having looked at these two newer books versus back in the original trilogy that, that it should be called The Book of Dust. Like, I, I just don't really get that title yet, I guess. He's, he's holding all his cards pretty close to the vest, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. I hope in the third one that, uh, that, that it all comes around. Yeah, well, so, I mean, like, um, Pullman is doing a really different thing uh, with his theology, his metaphysics, his philosophy. Um, than Tolkien and Lewis seem to be doing, um, although he's working with a lot of the same kind of materials, right? He and you talk about this in your paper how he sort of turns things around, and and I feel like you know dust is sort of like you know turning around uh, God, right? The person or the three person of God, right? And and making this other sort of concept, this um, you know material, essentially this dark material. Um, as he puts it, right? Is that the Holy Spirit, as <laughs> as the Christians conceive of it? Is is it something else? Yeah, Pullman likes to use the vocabulary of of uh, traditional literature, in which he would consider Tolkien and Lewis to be part of, and then he he likes to subvert it and turn it upside down. So whatever we expect, I'm sure it's going to be different than what we expect. Yeah, well, so that's do you what he does. Do you see a kind of spiritual, you know, you talk about the Imrav in terms of a, an adventure, but also with this component of um, the, the awakening or the realization of spiritual truths for, for the characters involved. And um, I'm curious, like, how, how do you see that working for Malcolm or Alice or perhaps Lyra in, in the new book, uh, In the Secret Commonwealth? For, and I think it all comes back to Lewis because Pullman is such a, a vocal critic of Lewis. And for, for Lewis in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's really Eustace's journey. The other ones have some things going on. Lucy certainly grows when she uses the magician's book to spy on her friends. Oh, yeah. And she learns that's not a good idea. Um, but it's really Eustace's journey to go from a rotten, uh, spoiled brat to um, a, basically a Christian, yes. a Christian believer. And so Pullman uses that sort of journey, but... Of course, he's not a Christian. He's an avowed atheist or agnostic. He, he uses both terms. Yeah. Um, so what is Malcolm becoming? What is Alice becoming on this journey? They're not becoming good Christian children. Mm -hmm. They're becoming good children. Right. They're becoming good, good citizens of humanity. They're learning that. Um, and they're put in awful situations in La Belle Sauvage. Um, they have to do violence in order to save themselves and protect each other. And that just must be horrific for a child, but it's like their lesson to learn that sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to do some stuff in order to, to survive and, and save other people. Yeah. It, so it's a, a thing that Pullman sort of touched on even in, um, in The Subtle Knife with Will, right? The first thing that Lyra learns about Will is he's a murderer. Murderer. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, this, this concept. And, um, it's very, you know, Grimm's fairy tale. You know, it's like stories for children that are like, really, is that really for children? <laughs> like, you know, uh, it's very much in that vein um, and, and very not uh, Louisian or Tolkienian per se in, mm -hmm. in their kids' books. Um, I mean, they, they touch on you know, some, some serious themes, but not in that kind of in-your-face manner. Um, and yeah, I, I wonder about, um, you know, the effect that this has had on, on Malcolm because we see him as a kid, 
um, he's really just a solid, you know, smart, uh, nice kid. And then this kind of crazy journey, you know, um, gets swept up in this, uh, rescues Lyra, thank goodness. And then we meet him again later and he seems like very, again, solid. Like, <laughs> did this really, um, you know, did it really take a toll on him at all? Or, or is he just really good at sort of keeping that in? And I think we get a little bit more interiority of him um, in, in the, the Secret Commonwealth, more so than in like the little mini book where he appears just briefly, the um, Iris right. Oxford book. Mm -hmm. As her advisor. Yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting that you chose the word solid because the way Malcolm is described in his, as an adult is um, a very solid, chunky, heavy guy and there's like no indication of that when he's a kid no yeah. I, I kind of envisioned a scrawny sort of scrappy kid um on this river voyage from oxford down to london and now he's an adult and and holman just keeps saying over and over again in the secret commonwealth that he's hefty or chunkier those might not be exactly holman's adjectives yeah. but that's the idea and that surprised me that Malcolm is such a big guy, big hands. He talks about, you know, his big hands and um, his red hair. And um, he seems like a real solid guy in the secret Commonwealth, not the scrappy youth of La Belle Sauvage. So that's really very interesting. And he's got this kind of power too, like um, where he sees, like he has this insight that manifests almost like visibly, like physically um, where, uh, it's not really explained um, really what that is or why it happens, but um, it again, it's like this this kind of superpower uh, that he has. It, it's you know it's notable that that Lyra also has kind of her powers, uh, which like powers um, that she gains in her journey, and that power that she's had all along of of reading the alethiometer apparently supernaturally right without apparent knowledge of what she's doing. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious, like, uh, are, are those, you know, magical? Are they uh, spiritual gifts of some kind? Or, or how are we to understand? It's possible that that's explained in La Belle Sauvage. Mm -hmm. One of the places that they visit is this island where obviously a fairy queen. Her oh, name yeah. is Diania. She's obviously a fairy queen in the tradition of Spencer's fairy queens and Shakespeare's um, Titania, and she breastfeeds Lyra. And Alice is like, oh, you like, like, can't accept food from fairies. That's going to change her forever. And, and so that might be why Lyra is so beloved by everybody, why polar bears take her in and witches take her in and Egyptians take her in without, um, you know, uh, hesitation. And that might be so, um, I think Alice and Malcolm also eat some of the food mm -hmm. on that island and Alice is worried that that's going to change them too. And maybe this is what we're seeing with mm -hmm. Malcolm as an adult is maybe eating that fairy food and being breastfed by a fairy has changed Malcolm and Lyra. Interesting. Yeah. And, and so Alice reappears too as this very sort of uh, reliable, um, very unassuming character. Uh, they're from the very start of Northern Lights or the Golden Compass, right? As, um, uh, the kind of caretaker, Mrs. Lonsdale, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and um, she isn't really a terribly big part of that book, but she does, you know, she is essentially Lyra's mother figure um, and just always kind of in the background. And then I guess Pullman sort of picked up on this character and, and brings her in and develops, you know, her story. Uh, and we see her much more active, I think, and, and just really courageous uh, in the Secret Commonwealth, right? When stuff starts going down in Jordan College. Um, she's uh, standing up to corrupt authority, you know, and yeah, um, perhaps that was a, a kind of awakening that, that she had on that journey too. Yes, and, and she may have been that way all along, mm -hmm. but Lyra never saw it in the first trilogy because Lyra was a child and very solipsistic and yeah. didn't really think about where the money was coming from to house her and feed her at Jordan College or who who arranged it or who was taking care of her. She just sort of lived at Jordan College like it was her, her playground. And now that she's older, she's like, oh, of course somebody was paying and of course somebody was taking care of me and making sure I had clothing. And um, so Mrs. Lonsdale had this role in the background that 
that um, I love the way Pullman developed that and, and took took characters that we were already introduced to and and made it like oh I had these characters all along planned out of course he didn't but <laughs> it's it's a nice it's a nice fake yeah I mean he he it's hard to keep straight all of the characters and everything going on by the time we come to the secret commonwealth um, it's like a Russian novel almost like characters come and go and uh, you know, very diverse cast in this one, people from all over the world, um, people with, you know, many allusions to their sort of stories happening in the background or other possible books out there, you know. So um, it, it's, a really, it's a really different feel. To me, the, the first trilogy was pretty tightly, I mean, especially the first two books uh, were, were really tightly written, really contained, right? And then it's sort of just, all bets are off, you know, anything goes in this new series. Like I, I really, I like it, I enjoy it, but it's just very different. Um, he's up to something here, Pullman. He is. So I have a, here's my um, world debut of my theory about the Secret Commonwealth. By all means. I want to read the third book before I'm sure, but I think that he's doing an alchemical journey. <sighs> and I think it's, it's very much like the 16th, 17th century alchemical texts where um, it's very picaresque. You have the, the seekers, so it's usually a young man, maybe a prince, one of a set of brothers, and he goes on, you know, these journeys and, and meets all these different people, and they all represent some part of the alchemical journey. So here we've got the story in the background of Jahan and Roxana, right. and that's obviously an alchemical journey. They're on this hunt for a rose garden, mm -hmm. which in, in um, alchemical texts represents the alchemist's um, alembic or vessel in which all the magic happens, right? And um, finding the rose is finding the, the goal of the quest. Then there's also the mirror of their journey in what Lyra is going through. So she meets this guy that that is a, like a, he looks like a normal kid or young man, but then he's a fire demon or whatever, right? <laughs> yeah, I was looking for that bit. That is so alchemical. That yeah, is yeah. that is just right out of the flaming the flaming guy. So I just ha I haven't had time yet because I've been working on my doctoral thesis, but I really want to go back and look at the Secret Commonwealth again and plot all that out against some of the um, more famous uh, uh, alchemical um, journeys. There's, there's um, the, the journey of the brothers and the <clears throat> some texts by Berowald de Verville, um, and I, that's my theory. I don't know if I'm right yet, but that's my theory. Yeah, so the chapter is chapter 20, the Furnace Man. Yeah, so the Furnace Man. They're in Prague, and um, she's got the name of a person that she should go and visit, and she got it from an alchemist, Sebastian. Uh -huh. Right? Who, uh, yeah, I, I sort of thought that he would be a, a bigger part of this book, but he, I think he is sort of orchestrating things probably in the background in some way. And yeah, so the Furnace Man, we have this fascinating take on the demon-human dynamic. Uh, Pullman does something really different here where the demon has the form of a water spirit, a kind of nymph almost, and the human has this, uh, yeah, you know, literally like he's on fire all the time. Uh, so they can never touch, right? They have to be separated. Um, and when they do come back together, uh, it turns out that the alchemist has you know, planned this from the beginning. Uh, Van Dongen, I, I think, is the, the fiery man. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I, I was trying to find the, oh, there he is. Johannes Agrippa, is, the, is that the alchemist? I'm, I'm not finding his name. And, and he was an actual historical so that's the name of an historical alchemist is Agrippa. Fascinating. Yeah. That's, that's wild. And so he, when they come together, it creates this steam and this mm -hmm. burst of power, right? When, when Azriel split people before it released power, but now when they come together, it releases this power. And he starts this like mechanism going, and we learn nothing more about like what that is or, but I think you're right. It's definitely symbolic. Yes. It's heavily, heavily symbolic. I mean, can't you just see the, the, the washing of the raw material? You wash, they wash, they wash. They heat it in the Alembic and another substance, uh, another essence comes out of that washing and heating and washing and heating. And I'm not an expert in literary alchemy or alchemy, but it just seems to me that, um, that that's what's going on and why 
right? Why such a fascinating character is only there for one chapter. Totally, yeah. And so he, Make Peace, Make Peace is introduced in the little book, Liars Oxford, which I feel like is really got the seeds of kind of all of this um, new series and, and makes this kind of bridge back to the original trilogy. Um, and yeah, Pullman is clearly, he's drawing on the Fairy Queen a lot. He's drawing on the Secret Commonwealth, which is a, a real book, right? Mm -hmm. um, Robert Kirk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, which is super interesting. I did, I did eventually read that um, in a version that I could like actually read um, because you can find it online, but it's like very old fashioned, uh, but there is a nice edition out there. Um, and yeah, so he's basically talking about like, you know, paranormal events and he's approaching it with like a kind of seriousness. Um, although mm -hmm. he's a, you know, a priest, uh, he, he treats these, you know, as things that need some kind of explanation or understanding, um, which, yeah, I mean, that's, that's wild. Uh, that is kind of the alchemists, uh, their, their approach to, you know, science as they understood it was, was much the same, right? That there's that everything in heaven and earth comes back to God. So yeah. even things that seem magical, there are rational explanations. Yeah. And Kirk was the seventh son of a large family and he was said to have the second sight. Yeah. So he had to reconcile the side of him that was uh, the Scottish clergyman and this, and this visionary mm -hmm. who talked about fairies and, and, uh, brownies and pixies and all the denizens of the secret commonwealth of, of Britain. And now does, I, I guess my question then, are you at all familiar with the, um, the alchemical stuff that might be going on in say a Charles Williams? Because uh, I don't know if Lewis and Tolkien were that, you know, interested in that stuff, but, but I'm pretty sure Williams probably was. Um, I, I have to say, I come to my literary alchemy through John Granger and his work on the Harry Potter series. Oh, uh, okay, cool. Well, that makes sense too. Yeah, because Rowling has clearly got some some alchemy. Yeah. I'd, I'd never heard of it before. I actually did a little um, a little essay that's going to press mm. this fall on literary alchemy in one of the Tales of Beetle the Bard, and that'll be coming out in. A book we don't know what it's called yet but it will be edited by lana whitehead whitehead okay. and she previously did the ivory tower and harry potter and this is like the second collection so i had done some research it's kind of funny how things just sort of all come together in your life and i was doing research on literary alchemy right when the secret commonwealth came out and maybe that's why i was so attuned to yeah. it well so in terms of the um the rose uh like within the context of Pullman's story, the roses have this power apparently of allowing people to see dust, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which up until now was something that that Asriel could do with his special photography equipment, um, but uh, the also these creatures in another universe, the Mulefra, right? And Mary, Mary, Mary could do that when she rubbed the oil on her lens. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, her homemade lens. And and so it's like. Um, Again, it's like this thing that was very sort of limited or very obscure, uh, recondite, right, is now like the danger is that everyone is going to have this ability. Everyone's going to know about dust. Uh, and this is, this is something the church is concerned to, of course, control, manipulate, use to their uh, nefarious right. mean, you know. But, um, but so what, if, if we could speculate a little bit, like what do you think Pullman is going to do with this in the third book? <laughs> like, what, how is he going to get this stuff to, to fit together somehow? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really excited though. I mean, I assume that Lyra and Malcolm are gonna make it to this garden or find out there wasn't a garden, but I bet there is a garden. Um, and, and somehow encounter this, and it's not just any rose, right? It's this special kind of rose that only grows in like, the cradle of civilization. And that's not a mistake either. Um, and now suddenly the church has tried to corner the market on this particular rose and you can't get it anymore. And it's the oil from this rose that lets you see the dust. I, I don't know, but somehow with Pullman's outlook, he is probably gonna release it to the world. Yeah. The church thinks that dust is evil. Um, they tried to get rid of it in the first, in the first trilogy. 
I don't think they've changed their mind in this trilogy. No, that seems right. Um, yeah, the, the way that the first trilogy ends, of course, is in a garden, right? The botanic garden. It's very beautiful how, you know, we come full circle back to Jordan College, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and Will's back in his world with Mary, and so they're probably fine, you know. Um, and Lyra's back in her, you know, her happy place, uh, her, her playground, but now it's a serious study place because she has to relearn to read the alethiometer. And, um, and there's this idea that she's going to, yeah, build the Republic of Heaven, right? This, this idea that in, in place of a kind of spiritual transcendent reality, that humans' job is to do good where they are and, and, and you know, gain understanding, gain knowledge, all that good stuff. Um, and so the Lyra that we see in the Secret Commonwealth, yeah, she's very much still on that journey, it seems like, both, you know, literally, but also um, sort of spiritually or, or just intellectually. But, but that, that sort of protective shell that she had around her, where this young girl, was she 11 in the first book? I think so, yeah. Right? Can, can get on a, a boat with some Egyptians, go up to the <laughs> north, hang out with some armored polar bears, you know, have, be part of a war, yeah. and nothing ever touches her, right? She is never in danger. And in the Secret Commonwealth, you know, she almost gets raped by a troop of Russian soldiers. It's, that was very scary to, yeah. to me to read that. Yeah. Um, that protective shell where, where nothing can touch her seems to be waning mm -hmm. quite a bit. So I don't know what's going to happen to her now, but maybe it wears off as you get older. I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's a much more dangerous journey this time. Yeah. And so I, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, that she will gain some kind of peace. Um, Pullman himself, of course, yeah, famously agnostic, atheistic, anti-church, uh, unsure about God, but pretty sure he's, you know, material or some sort of construct, I guess. Uh, and I think, you know, Pullman must be, he must be on a kind of journey too, right? He must be sort of searching for his, his rose garden, um, his, his happy places like writing stories, I guess, but, um, but gosh, what an overwhelming project it, it, to, to imagine how he's going to like get this all to, to kind of work out. And um, yeah, I'm not sure if there's going to be a happy ending to this one. It's uh, at best, it's going to be that kind of bittersweet thing that we get at the end of the first trilogy, I think. So gosh, but yeah. Right. But is it going to be like everybody on a train that crashes <laughs> no. in England and dies and goes to Narnia? I mean, I would just be... <laughs> The, the last battle scarred me in my childhood. Oh, no. I really don't want a last battle sort of ending no. for, for this trilogy. I think that would, would scar me if everybody just dies and goes and lives in a mystical rose garden. I don't know. <laughs> be awful. I think my favorite one of the Narnia books is probably the Dawn Treader, actually. I, I think that might be the one I liked best as a kid, and I think rereading it pretty recently, it still holds up. Like, I like that book. Um, I, I really like Reepicheep you know, the brave yeah. mouse hero. Um, and, I, and I do like all the sort of elements of, of wonder and sort of whimsy that come in on the different islands. I like Eustace's arc, you know, he's mm -hmm. pretty deplorable when we first meet him, but he turns out to be okay, you know, he, he grows. Um, and so I, I guess to go back to that Imrov thing, um, how do you see that working, uh, if at all, um, back in the in the original trilogy, is it is it more of a quest, more of an adventure? Does it have elements of that Imrav going on? Uh, it's really interesting. I don't know how to answer that. It's I think certainly um, Northern Lights, Golden Compass, whatever you want to call it, is is a quest tale, and and Lyra's the, the hero of that. Um, it doesn't end how she thinks it's going to end, which all Pullman books do that, but I it's interesting that she keeps escaping from Oxford on a boat. Like this is the third time yeah. that so when she's a baby, there's a big flood and Malcolm takes her on his canoe out of, of flooding Oxford. And then in um, the golden compass, she escapes on a boat with the Egyptians. And now in the secret Commonwealth, she escapes on a boat with the Egyptians. Yeah. Kind of. a. And then you were bringing up um, that will takes this river journey in right. the Ember Spyglass. So there's all of these journeys by water, which can't, maybe Pullman just likes water, but I don't, I think there's probably more to it than that. I think there's yeah. probably more thought behind it. 
I mean, and so part of this is potentially a an autobiographical element, right? Um, from his his lovely autobiographical sketch that's out there in in um, internet form, you can find I think on Internet Archive because it used to be on his webpage. Um, but he says, uh, you know, as a kid, he traveled a lot, right? They went to Australia, so he had this like very vivid experience of crossing the line. This like tradition of when you cross the equator you get dunked by the King Neptune and his, you know, mermaids appear. It, so it's just lovely, lovely evocation of his experience seafaring, you know. Um, and I guess that's, you know, got to be in the back of his mind, I guess, as he's creating his version of the Egyptian people, the, these, these people who traverse the waterways and, and know the ways of, you know, fairies and the secret commonwealth. Um, when but, he was in Australia, he witnessed a, a major flood of the oh. Murray Darling River. Yeah. And he says that is what spurred him on to write the flood story in La Belle Sauvage. Mm -hmm. um, so he's had these experiences with, with water. Of course, England is surrounded by water, so it's really hard and has a lot of rivers. It's hard yeah. to do anything in England without counting, encountering water. Yeah. And, and so, he, um, so he sets Will on his journey then um, up a flooded river uh, after you know the the cataclysm of the worlds being broken apart or you know, joined on or however you want to look at it, mm -hmm. and, and so Will um, Will has his kind of mini Imrav there. Mm -hmm. um, we don't hear much about you know what they see once they're actually on the boat, but but he's got this kind of run in with a, a really unsettling uh, priest who wants to kind of keep him, you know, the way like a a, a wicked witch would keep a child or something. Yeah. Um, he he then of course faces down Yorick Birnison, the very bear that he's been hoping to meet. Um, mm -hmm. And and they get they get on board their ship and they go up the river, right? But there's something so strange about this. Um, for me, in terms of like the time and the distances that we're covering, uh, I just don't see how it it really works. Um, this is something that was coming up for me as I've been rereading the series is particularly Mrs. Coulter, just like will pop up in all these different places almost instantaneously. Uh, like how she gets from place to place is, is very obscure to me. Um, I think of her like the queen on the chessboard. She just like zips across from, from end to end. Uh, and I, I don't know what Pullman's doing there. Like, cause he's normally quite careful and, and thoughtful about, you know, where we are and how we get somewhere new and but yeah does that i mean does that have to do with imrav at all like the way time might flow differently or something time definitely does flow differently in the other world so yeah. uh i mean he is very careful the first time lyra escapes oxford with the egyptians when she's 11 i mean they're on that boat for weeks right. trying to get to the north and i don't know if it's a, a facet of storytelling that he just wants to hurry up the storytelling mm -hmm. um you know, the, the TV producers of Game of Thrones had that same problem where they just needed to accelerate the story and get people moving around Westeros very quickly. And the audience was like, hey, hey, that's supposed to take like months. Right. And suddenly you're there in one episode. And I don't know if it was that sort of thing, like just trying to accelerate the story. Or if she, I mean, she also has this magical power over people, doesn't she? Definitely, yeah. She's mesmerizing and everyone loves her and she's the most beautiful, captivating woman that anybody has ever seen. And so maybe she has a bit of, of fairy in her as well. We don't know. Um, that's a really interesting idea to look at all the journeys and the times. I mean, they say she's got a gyropter, right? Doesn't she take Azrael's gyropter? And at one point she does steal yeah. the intention craft, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, the intention craft, that's right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, and yes, but she does seem to pop up and change personalities. Mm -hmm. there, yeah, that does correspond with a, a pretty major shift in her character, yes. Um, after she has kidnapped Lyra, whisked her away somehow up to the Himalaya mountains, you know. Keeps um, her unconscious for whatever, many chapters. A magical sleep, right? Yeah, and so Lyra is like, She's out of commission. We only see her in like dream ghost form, uh, which is structurally very interesting as a kind of linking device between these chapters that are jumping between worlds and between characters. And then we finally get to, you know, Will, York, and the Galavespians, everybody 
you know, kind of converging on the spot. Um, and we finally get Lyra back, right? But it's at the cost of a really horrible, you know, betrayal of Mrs. Coulter that she's apparently turned it around. She's willing to help. She is hoping that she can help and be helped. And they abandon her. You know, it's yeah. it's heartbreaking. Um, I I just yeah, Pullman doesn't pull punches. He uh, he's he's um, I guess he's he's dealing with a, a very different worldview than um, mm -hmm. ultimately or a different perspective from the same worldview maybe than than his his fantasy uh, forefathers are. So right, because imagine in in the early. Uh, fantasy, whether it would be Lewis or um, E. Nesbitt or and Enid Blyton, you'd have children coming back. Francis uh, Hodgson, you'd have children coming back with their parents or a parental figure. You'd have that reconciliation at the end of the story, mm -hmm. and everybody would live happily ever after. The, the abandoned child, the orphan child is not really an orphan. I've right. been looking for you <laughs> for months, and I finally found you. Um, we don't ever get that in Pullman. You get you get betrayal and abandoning. And, and so now Lyra has abandoned Jordan. She's abandoned Mrs. Lonsdale and um, Malcolm has to go after her and track her down all across yeah. Europe. So, um, but it's more realistic, isn't it? Yeah, right. The, so that element of, of fantasy and sort of magic, um, inexplicable events, but then there is this element of, of the realism that Pullman is also apparently you know, very attracted to, very enamored of uh, in, in his reading. And yeah, I, so I wonder about um, the, I don't know, the audience for this new book, you know, uh, because the events are so sort of rough, uh, violent, um, upsetting. Um, I don't know if, you know, I was reading this as a kid, I would, I would like these books. Um, Look how big these books are. Yeah. They're not children's books. They're not, I, I don't know if they're for the people who were children 20 years ago when he wrote the original trilogy and they're now grown up, or if they're for himself. Right. Having these characters continue to inhabit his brain and need to, to exercise them. Yeah. Yeah. In some way. But this is not what publishers would put on the children's <laughs> shelf. Right. Um, so, as we're getting to, um, you know, deal with Malcolm and Lyra, um, they're so they're so they're sort of joined in a way by that experience they had um, 20 years ago, whatever it was. Um, they are together for a pretty brief portion of this big book, and then um, somehow they also are like falling in love uh, in the course of the story, right? Um, and that right. once again. Like, <laughs> odd uh, a stretch for a lot of readers um yeah how, does that fit with the the alchemical read perhaps or does that have any place in the imrav at all i or? think i think in the alchemical texts it makes sense malcolm is frequently referred to as his red hair red he's choleric he's the red king mm -hmm. and she silver tongue she's silver or white queen I think it totally makes sense that they are in an alchemical text meant to be together. Will Pullman do that or will he pull them apart at the end? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but it is weird to have your babysitter when you were an infant fall in love with you. And not only that, but he was her like uh, master's thesis advisor or something. It was just yeah. weird. <laughs> but it looks like that's the way he's going for a while at least. It could be that Malcolm has unrequited love for her for the, you know, the mm -hmm. rest of the book three. I don't know. We'll find out. Yeah. I mean, it seems kind of requited, or she's at least sort of thinking about it in different yeah. parts of the book. Um, but she's also undergone such kind of wild and, and horrible things that, you know, who knows uh, what she'll come out of this um, feeling or, or, or thinking about. Right. But, but there's another, there's like a young man who pops up kind of at the end, right? So I mean, mm -hmm. he come, becomes more important at the end. And I thought, well, maybe that's going to be a, a love triangle and she'll have to choose, or I'm not quite sure what. Even, go even the sort of villain character, the young Bonneville, oh, the young right? Bonneville. He's a kind of ringer for Will, right? She thinks he's Will at first when she's seeing him in this vision. Um, she's so excited. And then it's this kind of wrenching moment where she realizes not, well, it's, quite the contrary, somebody who's like hunting her, you know, just like 
um, this dark shadow of the past, you know, uh, he's got he's got vengeance on his mind. Um, he holds Malcolm and Lyra responsible for his father's death. So it's it's very messy. Um, if there is some kind of love triangle, love quadrangle forming here, it's going to be uh, uh, trouble. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm looking for the name. Is that Nurhuda? The the young man, the guide at the end. Yeah, yeah I mean uh, he's. I think he's going to have a bigger role in the next mm -hmm. book, but. Um, so he saves not, her. Yeah, so he, he saves her. He's not her, who but, he says he is, uh-huh. Yeah, and he seems to know quite a bit, yeah, about what's going and, on. And then Olivier Bonneville. Yeah, so interesting. There's a lot of lot left to go, I guess. Mm -hmm. But have you heard about the new book? Mm -mm. Holman's going to do another one of those small books like Lyra's Oxford oh. and Once Upon a Time in the North. It's called going to be called Serpentine, Serpentine, Serpentine. Oh. And it's going to come out October 15th. That's exciting. I That's the next thing we're getting. And so isn't the serpentine like a, a little bit of water in one of the parks in London? Or yes, something? yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. it's, That's another it's place. A, place. It's another place. Mm -hmm. But apparently she goes to the north again to, um, this is pre-Secret Commonwealth. So it takes place between La Belle Sauvage, oh, wonderful. first trilogy, there's a big gap of like 10 years between the end of the first trilogy and the secret Commonwealth. And it's going to be in that 10 year chunk. She goes to the North to try to ask the witches, she and Pan about their relationship. Why can we separate? Uh -huh. Good, good. And so it's going to dive into that a little bit more. That was one of the things I was really expecting to come out in the storytelling that we get is, you know, what happened to Pan and, and Will's demon when they were separated at the land of the dead, you know, what were they up to and, and what's, you know, what sort of insights did they gain? You know, what adventures did they have? And we heard nothing about it really, um, except that there is this kind of, you know, tension or resentment between Lyra and Pan that wasn't there before. So, right. so yeah. And, and then what I find fascinating about the secret Commonwealth is that we also grow up in this book. Um, we have, encounter in this book all sorts of people who separate from their demons all of a sudden. This is something we thought was unique to Pan and, and Lyra and Will and Kimbara. And now all of a sudden there's, there's whole communities of people or, or if you get on a train and somebody notices you don't have your demon, it's like, oh, she's one of those. They've heard of this thing before. And so as an audience, we're also having our eyes opened that that maybe this relationship isn't as um, all in all. Uh, maybe Lyra's not the only one. I'm not yeah. quite sure how to say what I'm thinking, but yeah. But, but I think that fits kind of nicely with your, your alchemical theory, though, because it does seem to deal a lot with, you know, joining things, separating things out, mm -hmm. this kind of flux. Um, and yeah, so could you, I mean, could you recommend, again, what what are the what are the texts or what are some of the sources? Because, I, I mean, I know the Alchemist by Paulo Coelho, but I don't think that's quite what you're talking about. Um, that's that's a sort of a modern one. Um, sure. Um, let me let me boot up my uh, my Google machine here. Okay. I don't know if anybody would actually want to read these because they were written in the 16th 17th century. But there's an author called Francois Berowald, B-E-R-O-A-L-D-E de Verville. And he wrote a couple of these alchemical texts where um, these princes, these brother princes go off on adventures and um, uh, in, there's one where they end up in a rose garden and um, Berowald was a professor of Agrippa d'Aubigné. Um, an alchemist, like I said, Agrippa was a was an alchemist's name. So if you just Wikipedia, um, Berowald, B-E-R-O-A-L-D-E, you'll get some information about um, some of his and some book cover uh, images from 1610. And there's one, The Voyage of the Fortunate Princes, that the whole book cover is this formal garden that is part of the alchemical oh. path, alchemical journey. Um, Fascinating. Yeah, I don't know enough about al alchemy, but uh, just enough, a little 
to be dangerous. Right? I mean, that's, isn't that by design though? It's sort of a hermetic tradition. It's not like something you can just like read a book and be like, oh, that makes sense. Like you have to have like a master who's like sure. teaching you. It's like the secret knowledge. It's so it's odd. I mean, Tolkien is very attracted to Gnostic elements in the Christian tradition. Um, he talks about that a bit. And, and I think that's, he even says that's part of why he took so long to write the Ember Spyglass is like he was reading this book about Gnosticism that was kind of overwhelming for him. And he was like too theoretical and not enough in the story. And a lot of people, you know, didn't like the Ember Spyglass as much as the others because it is sort of. Mary spends a lot of time making that lens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. One of my reference textbooks um, on, on alchemy when I was doing my research is Lindy Abraham, Abraham's a Dictionary of Alchemical Imagery. And it's not a dictionary with short definitions, they're quite lengthy definitions, so that you can look up Rose Garden and find out what did a Rose Garden mean to alchemists, or the Red King and the White Queen, and the, the um, you know, cosmic marriage, and, and sort of figure some of that stuff out in a, in a if you like reading dictionaries, right? I mean, <laughs> well, the it's not a novel. The other person who I, I have heard of in this connection is Carl Jung, right? His, his sort of psychological researches led him to, you know, get very into alchemy and its sort of metaphorical significance um, and, you know, dream interpretation, which is a big thing, right? In, in these, mm-hmm. these books, you know, sort of understanding how, how the unconscious, how visions and, and inspiration work um, to an extent, right? So I don't know. I mean, have you have you delved into the Jung uh, tomes at all, or I have not. No, me neither. <laughs> okay, I have not. But certainly, dream interpretation is huge in the Secret Commonwealth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like just like you said about the demons separation not being so unique, it turns out there's many ways to read uh, the Alethiometer, Right? There's many ways to gain signs and symbols from from the universe. Um, you know, uh, Mary Malone with her I Ching but also like right. the set of cards, the storytelling cards. Um, right. And there's more Olivier, than one way to read the alethiometer too, right? It's just, Olivier Bonneville, who is yeah. the, the, the son of the villain in the first yeah. um, uh, Book of Dust, has this whole new way that yeah. he has of reading it. Nobody's ever encountered this before. And Lyra hears about it, her teachers hear about it, and she tries it and it makes her sick. Yeah. But it's something that he can do. Is that because he's sick like his father was mentally ill Mm -hmm. um i don't know uh, maybe you bring to the alethiometer what what is inside you and different people read it differently because of that i'm not sure yeah yeah and so i i think you know pullman he's got a, a larger project that he seems to be working on here um and i'll be interested to see if he avows any relationship to alchemy or if it remains sort of a hidden thing. I, I look forward to seeing what you come up with as you're reading through this. And, yeah, and I really and, want to write this article, but I've got to work on my, my doctoral thesis, which is on a completely different topic. So it might be a while somebody else might, might write on that first, but um, I'm going to keep my eye out for it when the third giant tome mm-hmm. hits the shelves in a future year. And this little one too, the serpentine one. Thanks for bringing yeah, that to my attention. That, I, just, that was just announced, um, I think, last week. Fantastic, awesome. Well, so so what are you currently working on? What are you? What are the texts you're currently kind of digging into? And um, I'm digging into a lot of Irish mythology. So I've been reading. Um, uh, well, I've been reading the Irish mythology that Tolkien read. So he donated his Christopher Tolkien, his son, donated several of his books to the Bodleian Library. And we have a list of what those are. And because they're so old, they're out of copyright and you can read them on uh, Internet Archive or mm-hmm. Project Gutenberg. And so I've been going through some of those and trying to see the, the Irish mythology that Tolkien himself read. I've been doing quite a bit of that the last few years and um, try, just trying to read all sorts of criticism um, of Tolkien by people like Verlin Flieger, John Garth, um, uh, Dimitri Fini, all sorts of, of folks. So I've been reading a lot of um, literary criticism and I, uh, ancient Irish mythology, which can be odd in a really wonderful way. Yeah, I only know a little of 
of the original sources for that stuff. Um, but it does seem like it, it must permeate uh, Tolkien in, in a lot of ways, um, you know, as you know, all of his sort of mythological reading does. But, uh, but yeah. That definitely, a very quick example, and not one that I found, but that, um, that was mentioned in the, the J.R. Tolkien Encyclopedia, was, you know, in the, his first version of the Silmarillion, the Book of Lost Tales, you have this mariner, Ariel, who comes to Tol Erisia, and he comes to this little house, and he has to get small to go in it, and that's where he meets the fairies or the elves, the first version of what would become the, the elves. And there is a, the birth of Cahulan in Irish mythology. Some of the kings are out hunting, and they need a place to stay for the night, and they come upon this little house, and the, the man and the wife that are the master and mistress of the house come out they go come on in no bring your horses bring everything just come in and they're looking at this little hut and they're like we can't all fit in there but they all fit in there because it's like the TARDIS it's bigger on the uh -huh. inside than the outside and it's just like the cottage of lost play in Tolkien yeah. so if you know the Irish mythology you can see it spread throughout throughout Tolkien's writings from the very beginning all the way to the very end that's wonderful I, yeah I love that that sort of paradox of the thing that's bigger on the inside than out. And I, I feel like there is a lot of truth to that in, 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 many, uh, in many places. So that's super cool. Well, yeah, thanks again for your time and uh, chatting with me about you know, all this wild stuff in Pullman and, and speculating and sharing your, your theory about the alchemy. Um, I'm too undisciplined to finish any articles, so I won't be the one to steal it, but I'll, <laughs> Let me right. run with it and, and Lis think about listeners, it. Listeners, listeners, track it down and tell me if I'm right. Uh, it's going to be a year or two before I can get to that. But uh, thank you. This was so much fun. I'm glad we finally found a time to do this. Yes, it's been a pleasure. Well, thanks again, and I'll see you around. Bye.